You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we come before you this morning by virtue of looking into your word, and it is with delight and anticipation that we do that, for we know you will teach us. You have made a promise that you will apply this to our lives every day as we seek you and as as you give grace. And so, Father, this morning as we look into your word and see what the Corinthians learned, might we learn it also. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, weeks ago, we had... um, began working in, we're in 2 Corinthians 7 still, and Paul had come back to the subject he left in chapter 2, and the little diversion that he went on um, has, has ended in, in verse 5, approximately in verse 5 and 6, and so we will actually, in interest of making sure we stay, we maintain good context, contextual uh, application this morning. We'll read the entire chapter 7 again, and I believe we'll finish up chapter 7 again. What do you think of the new chairs? Did anybody notice? <laughs> okay. An ooh and an ah would be appropriate. Yeah, okay. Okay. All right, we're done. Second Corinthians chapter 7. Therefore, actually, I like to read the last three verses of chapter 6 because that's what the therefore is about, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols, for we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having those promises, these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all, all our afflictions. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For although I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. 
So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be known, might be made known to you in the sight of God. <laughs> for this reason, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. And his, his affection abounds all the more towards you as he remembers the obedience of you all. Now, how you, excuse me, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. So Paul boasted about the Corinthians. Back in the early part of this chapter, he talks about it. And then here, there, much toward the end, he, re, he repeats that. Now, we're going to talk about what kind of a boasting that was. And we're going to see that there's an appropriate kind of boasting. And Paul engaged in that. We're also going to see what, what excited Titus and what would excite the heart of any shepherd in a body of Christ, in a body of believers. So we left off at verse, I believe we left off at verse uh, 9. We did. So let's just take a quick look at 8 and 9. For though I caused you sorrow, remember that letter he wrote, the severe letter, which we don't have. Um, he was nervous about that. And I'm guessing that all of his entourage was nervous about that. Imagine being the guy sent to, to meet the delegation from the church that you wrote. You, you wrote the severe letter and you sent somebody else to them to meet him. Titus must have been one good dude to do that with. And Titus, you're going to see that they were, there was a little fear and trembling on the part of the Corinthians when they, they we got to talk with Titus. We better be on our best behavior. So Paul properly negotiates this entire situation to the greatest advantage. And that advantage is to get the Corinthians to repent, to get them to be aware of where they had gone wrong with the, with the, the young man living in sin with his father's wife, with the suing each other and all of the things that were going on, the marriage questions, so that when the meeting happened, when he met them again, he was hopeful that they had changed, that they had repented. And so in, that's what this is all about. That's what he's talking about. He caused them sorrow by his letter, and he doesn't regret it. I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. So <laughs> he was forced to take action. And when he took that action... He, he had to cause some sorrow. He had to cause some discomfort, some upset in the church in order. And isn't that often what happens when we, when we relay the truth to people, that it upsets them? That especially when, imagine when you've done something wrong and someone was brave enough to come to you and confront you with it. You didn't go, boy, I'm so glad. That's wonderful. I really am a jerk. Let's, let's work together on solving this. That's probably not what happened. You probably argued, if you're like me, and defended yourself and actually confronted back in some respects. Now, there are plenty of people among us that are humble. I'm not one of them. I'm learning that. But uh, that's what's required when we're confronted with our own, our own our improper actions is humility. What does God do to the humble? What does he give to them? Grace. But what does he do to the proud? He rejects them. And so when a believer is confronted biblically by the word of God that demonstrates their sin, they will have godly sorrow. Now, it may not be instantaneous. It would be wonderful if it always was. But 
in the, in, the, in the interaction that occurs, none of us is perfect, and sometimes we don't bring it to them in the best way. Work on that. That's something I've tried to learn to do. Ahead of time, if nobody's dying, if there's no abuse going on, take the time to spend time in God's Word and with good counsel to make your presentation to them as, if you will, airtight, biblically, as you possibly can. So that you're, and make sure that you come, as Paul says in Galatians 6.1, in an attitude of humility, lest you be tempted, because all of us are susceptible to it. None of us is immune. So Paul knew that. He wrote the severe letter, and who knows how much time he spent on that letter. But and I want to read that letter. I can't wait. That's one of the things, when I get to, the, to, to heaven, to glory, I'm going to say, the letter, can I read it, please? I want to read it. I want to read that letter. Not that we need it. Paul says in verse 9, he says, Now I rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful. He wasn't delighted that he had to send the the severe letter. He wasn't happy, if you will, that the letter churned them up and upset them and hurt some people. But he was he was delighted because they were made sorrow for the point to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. If we are unwilling to confront sin in our Christian brethren, they might suffer loss because of us. We don't want that to happen. Paul didn't want that to happen. So he rejoiced over the letter because of the sorrow that was, that was ongoing and creating this godly repentance. Now we'll, we'll jump into verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. No regrets when you repent of the things that you've done wrong. There's no regret. Leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. There are two kinds of sorrow. You, you know, there's two kinds of people. There's two kinds of Cheetos or whatever. But there really are two kinds of sorrow. One is when it is according to the will of God and it will result in a believer in true repentance, which is not some psychological, emotional response to correction, but rather genuine remorse, which results in a changed life. And that's what shepherds and the Lord Jesus Christ is looking for in, a, in an anthropomorphological way. <laughs> yeah, go ahead and say that three times fast. So, two kinds of sorrow. The sorrow that is according to the will of God, which I said is not some psychological, emotional response but rather a genuine remorse which produces a changed life, a changed behavior. Especially, you'll notice a change of behavior in the area where the confrontation occurs. The Corinthians stopped suing each other. The Corinthians stopped living with people they shouldn't be living with in in strange marital relations. They actually became, Paul says he was boasting about them. They became a church that he could say, look at these Corinthians. They're coming around. So, the other kind of sorrow is a sorrow of the world and it will result in anger, self-pity, wounded pride and an attempt generally to remove oneself from the difficult circumstances in order to get back to a previous state of happiness. Not correcting the situation but getting away from it, getting out of it, getting away from the person that's confronting, whatever it takes to get back to my own personal happy place so I can just leave me alone my, you know, I want to be left alone. I'm, I, I don't like you confronting me. Strictly speaking, strictly of salvation here, godly repentance leads one after being imbued with faith by God himself to salvation, a changed life, and a new direction. Unsanctified sorrow can lead to death, leads to death. Generally, in an unregenerate heart, sorrow leads to rebellion and bitterness. 
in a heart that has been regenerated by Christ and given the faith to trust, sorrow leads to salvation. And in a believer, it leads to repentance and change. And so that's what he's talking about here. The progression here is clear. God regenerates a sinner who then feels sorrow over their sin. That sorrow produced by God himself leads to salvation in which there is never any regret. Genuine salvation will never be regretted. When you, say, when you hear people who say, yeah, I did that church thing once and I regret it now. Well, they were never saved. I'm sorry. That isn't what's produced by godly sorrow. What's produced by godly sorrow is a repentance without regret, the scripture says. <clears throat> repentance is absolutely necessary for salvation, and this is the thing that the prideful heart resists the most. Indeed, and, and it, uh, the unsaved prideful heart and the saved prideful heart. Let us not lose sight of that. Indeed, in the book of Revelation, we see during the great end times um, happenings, wicked men. So then he's trying to figure out where he is with this thing. <laughs> Let me go back. Give me a second here. There we go. We see in Revelation, we see wicked men clearly seeing God in action and hating him more. Resisting him more and dying in their sins. Re Revelation 16, 10, and 11. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became darkened and they gnawed their tongues because of pain and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. By the way, that's what we're repenting of. We're repenting of sin. But sin can be, it's not a nebulous term when you look into the actual meaning of it, but it can be. Sin is the bad things that we do, and they need to be named. I'm sure that letter named them. The next one in Revelation chapter 6, it says, And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So not only does ungodly sorrow produce death, it produces this kind of death where they call on God to, kill, to, to be killed. They, they would rather be killed than repent. <laughs> Is that unimaginable almost? But that's because you've believed and you know the Savior. And it's just hard to believe people could react to him that way. But had we not been given the grace of God to repent, we would have reacted that way. Make no mistake. Any questions or comments about verse 10? Godly sorrow, ungodly sorrow. Verse 11, for behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. Every, in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. What a group of interesting words to string together in a Holy Spirit inspired sentence. There are many things that occur at proper repentance. And this came as a result of godly sorrow that results in repentance. Seven results are listed in this verse. For the believer, godly sorrow results in an earnestness. You become, you become eager about the things of God. Where before, they were boring and blasé. They were dumb. They were stupid. Who would, who would believe in that stuff? You become eager about them. <laughs> the next one is, is a vindication. But godly sorrow results in an eagerness to set things right as well. The Corinthians recognized that 
that their vilification of Paul and the resistance to his influence in their lives was wrong. And upon recognizing this, they quickly set about making that right. This is what the sorrow and repentance, the the, the repentance that was produced by sorrow um, worked in the lives of the Corinthians. They began eager to undo some of the things that they had done wrong and to make things right. Further, their complacency in the face of wanton sin allowed it to develop into something far worse than it would have been had they confronted it early on. Always remember that. If we confront sin early, it has less repercussions. It can have less repercussions. Recognizing this is one of the results of godly sorrow and results in a new believer wanting to move quickly in the area of correction, humility, and submission to the Word of God. You... you. I don't know if I can characterize this. You, especially as you study God's word and you see the coherence and the cohesiveness and the, the beauty of it, you want to submit to it. You want to find the things that it has an answer for. And so when someone confronts you, you look, you say, okay, I'm going to study that out because I want to know how the proper. And so like what Peter was talking about earlier, there are clear procedures for dealing with confronting a brother in sin. God has given them to us. Don't skip one of the steps. Oh, he's a step guy. Yeah, in this case, God gave him steps. He said, go to your, go yourself, and if that doesn't work, take one or two and go with them, and if that doesn't work, then go to the church. If you go to the church first, you blew it. God gave us procedures. We want to see godly sorrow developed so that repentance follows. <clears throat> Where am I at? Vindication. What Vindication. This Greek word, apologia, is where we get our word apologetics. Um, it, is a, it is a speech in defense. The Corinthians wanted to clear their name of accusations. That was now long, the, Those accusations were now no longer accurate as a result of their repentance. What they did formally is no longer what they are doing, and they want to clear their name. They want to be vindicated. <clears throat> All those who were aware of the sin they had committed now needed to be made aware of the change of mind and the resulting change of behavior. Don't you want people to know about your change? Not so that you'll be, you'll be elevated, but so, so that God will, that his word that makes that difference in your life can come into their life. And so that's what the Corinthians are doing. They, 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 wanted, vindica- they wanted to be uh, vindicated, apologia. And it's not an apology. I'm sorry for the gospel. That's not what that means. It's a defense of the gospel. The next word, indignation. What indignation you felt, he says. <laughs> the word, this word, particular word, occurs only here in the New Testament. It comes from the same word which means to be indignant or to be angry. One of the most important responses to sin in our lives is to be properly, appropriately angry at ourselves for an inappropriate way, for, in an appropriate way for committing sin, for harming others, for damaging God's reputation. Sin is a destroyer. It destroys relationships. It destroys trust. It destroys. It's a destroyer. None of us can ever get away from the fact that our wrong actions have the potential to destroy the relationships in our lives. This is a proper response. This this indignation is a proper response Produced by godly sorrow, an indignation and a disgust with the actions that one formerly committed. I can just imagine, because we know that the the young man who was living in sin with his father's wife repented. Because Paul had to tell the Corinthians, he's repented, let him back in. And 
so that your continual refusal to let him back in doesn't produce unbelievable sorrow. So this young man had probably just was disgusted with himself and furious in, in the right way that he had ever fallen into that kind of a sin. Be sure that when that happens, when we confront somebody and they truly repent, that we restore that relationship as quickly as possible. Now, that doesn't mean we don't, there, there isn't necessarily accountability, especially in certain areas with egregious sin, maybe child abuse or something like that. But still, when repentance occurs, it's incumbent upon those who have been offended to rejoice and to forgive, to not hold them responsible anymore for that act. They've truly repented. Closely allied with this, is that clear indication of godly sorrow and that someone takes responsibility for the things they did and doesn't try to blame or name-call others. Yes, I did that. I was wrong. Well, you know, but she actually started the argument. What, one guy, he said, yeah, the fight started when she hit me back. That's brother and sister. No, they take responsible, responsibility for their own sin. So a true repentance... A person will evince a godly sorrow and they will take responsibility for the things that they did. They don't try to blame others. They recognize that they and they alone are responsible for their sin. Next one is fear. And sometimes we always try to play this down. Well, it's a godly awe. Yeah, yeah, that's there. But originally this Greek word meant to withdraw from a situation because one did not have the resources to meet it. It came to mean flight, terror, or in a biblical context, genuine awe and reverential fear. They recognized that the chastening that they were receiving wasn't from Paul confronting them with the severe letter. That chastening was from God. And their fear was real and that they wanted to assuage that chastening by becoming obedient. This is another godly result of the sorrow that produces repentance, fearfulness. And I don't mean uh, looking over your shoulder and running from everything. I mean a recognition that you've offended the God of the universe. And he spoke all this into existence in, we defined it as probably a nanosecond, but it probably didn't take any time because then he created time. This is the God that has been offended by the sin that is being confronted in the Corinthian church. The next one is longing. This is a translation of a Greek word which means to have a desire for something. In the past, when the Corinthians, sure of their own godliness and brilliance, were quick to dis dismiss Paul, to, to dispute with him and to call his apostleship into question, now, as a result of the godly sorrow that produced repentance, it has caused in them a longing to see him again. They recognize what he did for them. He brought them the gospel, the life-changing gospel. And they were... What have we done? <laughs> Probably, I've, I can't imagine. It just must have been wonderful, the, the repentance that it produced in them. They had a desire to be with him and have the relationship that they have with him restored or in some cases started properly. This is a wonderful result of godly sorrow in human relationships where formerly there was hate, distance, and no desire for companionship. Now there is a longing to be close and to be restored. That is, a, that is a result of godly sorrow, a longing to be restored with the one you've offended. Next one is zeal. <laughs> the Corinthians formerly had no desire to seek Paul or to pay attention to his admonitions, and therefore they were resisting God. Now their zeal for holiness had either returned, in some cases, or come anew. This 
was is related to verse seven, where Paul notes their zeal for him in the morning that they had done in mourning that they had done him wrong. Make no mistake, when when um, unbelievers or rebellious, if you will, I, I, I try to use that term carefully, rebellious believers see the restoration that can come from a proper confrontation and response of godly sorrow. It can have unbelievable effects on them, on others. The, the, the ripple effects of, of, of properly applying God's word in this area are magnificent and huge. They can just, they can bless so many people. It can bless families. It can bring families back together. It can just, now, no, I'm not going to be negative. It just can. It can bring families back together. It can do unbelievable things because it's God's word and his word restores. So they had no desire. Now they had a zeal. And the word is, is uh, um, zealous. where we, It means a burning fire to get back together, essentially. Then they had an avenging of wrong. The Corinthians formerly, in this context, and especially with an understanding of the proper translation of the Greek word, this is not retribution. This is not what was talked about here. This is a repentant people desiring to see justice done and to make restitution for their misdeeds, whatever that restitution might be. The Corinthians have accepted the consequences of their wickedness, and they desire to make things right with Paul. It would be important for the Corinthians then, and, and important for us now, to make every effort to right our own wrongs. Others must be responsible to their own conscience, and if their repentance is godly, you can be certain they will follow the same path of taking responsibility for their sins, recognizing the gravity of their, their um, offenses and desiring to make them right and turning from them in the future. This is what proper godly repentance does. It's huge what it does. It's, mad, it's wonderful. The final result in the, in the context of godly sorrow that produced repentance was an innocence in the matter that resulted from their proper attendance to the sin that had formerly beset them. This is not to say that they were innocent of the original violation, but rather their proper response to the reproof of Scripture showed them to be free of any further guilt in this matter. And we need to recognize that. How often do we remind people of the things they did to us that they've repented for? Don't do it. It's so tempting. Well, you, you used to be like this. Yeah. And if someone does that to you, just, just acknowledge it. Yeah, I, I did. Aren't you glad I'm not that way anymore? I am. Stay humble because you were. I was. But that's what godly repentance does. Barclay in his commentary puts it this way. He says, a worldly sorrow is not really sorrow at all in one sense, but it is, but it is not sorrow for its sins or for the hurt it may have caused others. It is only a resentment that it has been found out. If it got the chance to do the same thing again and thought it could escape the consequences, it would do it. A godly sorrow is a sorrow which has come to see the wrongness of the thing it did. It is not just the consequences of the thing it regrets. It hates the thing itself. We must be very careful that our sorrow for sin is not merely sorrow that we have been found out, but sorrow which, seeing the evil of the sinful thing, is determined never to do it again and has dedicated the rest of its life to atone by God's grace for what it has done. Not that we're required to atone for our sins, but there are things that we may have to make up for that we have done to others. It might be monetary, it might be emotional, it might be whatever, property issues, 
If God has moved you to a godly sorrow, if God has moved like the Corinthians, I don't know what that son, that young man had to do, and the people that sued each other, I can imagine them being like what Zacchaeus did. They turned to each other and said, I'm giving you back what I sued you for. It was wrong. That's what it's talking about. That's what this is talking about. That's what a godly sorrow will produce. When you've done wrong, God will move you in a right way to make it right. Verse 12. So, although I wrote to you, back to this letter, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. When Paul wrote the severe letter, it was not just to take the offender to task, but it was also to remind them of what they had originally thought about Paul and that he had brought them the gospel of God, what they originally thought about the gospel. You rep- maybe you don't, it's, if some of us have been saved a long time, but the first response to the gospel that was a response of faith because God regenerated you. It was delight, unbelief. Wow, fabulous. And Paul was trying to drive them, this is, would drive them back to that so that their earnestness, their, especially their original earnest, <coughs> earnestness, they originally loved him and were delighted with this message of life that he brought. But evil communications, evil companions, evil relationships, especially with the uh, false apostles and uh, um, Judaizers, and an unwilling to, unwillingness to root out those vindictive false teachers that were undermining Paul's authority had caused many of the Corinthians to reject Paul and his message. Paul was not willing to continue to badger them. He wanted them to see themselves in the mirror of Scripture. That godly sorrow that he mentioned in verses 10 and 11 had he hoped and, be- he hoped and believed resurrected, if you will, their respect for him. And it's an appropriate respect, a respect driven because of the gospel, because Paul brought them the gospel. Proper sorrow over wickedness can restore one's perspective, especially about the people that one formerly was wicked to. So when you have been confronted, when we confront somebody or we've been confronted, and we recognize our sin and we repent, it changes our perspective of the person that confronts us. So the severe letter... And we're going to see how much it changed when Titus meets with them later on in this chapter and in, verse, in chapter 8. <clears throat> so others look at this verse as a description of the events that occurred when Paul challenged the young man living with his father's wife. The offender would be the young man and the offended would be the father. An exposition, the exposition of this verse would be the same. The proper, their proper response, if a bit zealous, showed their respect for Paul in the same way. That they had understood what he said in the letter and they had properly dealt with that sin. So much so that he had to remind them to forgive later on and to bring him back into fellowship. So he wrote not just for the offender nor for the offended, but so that their original, their earnestness, their zealous zeal for the word of God might be made known to them. It's good to remember. It's good to remember that zeal for the word of God. Any questions or comments? Verse 13. For this reason... For this reason, all of the above, the fact that they responded, they responded with godly sorrow, relationships were restored, you have a proper res- response to the people who brought the gospel to you in the original, in the, or- in the beginning. For those reasons, where he says, for this reason, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. The comfort that Paul and his companions received made them rejoice both for their own comfort 
and for the joy that Titus felt when he received this report from the Corinthians. He too would have likely known what was in that severe letter. And there might have been a, and he might have been a bit reticent to meet with the Corinthians knowing that if their response to that letter was negative, he would bear the brunt of that response. But their response to the letter as Paul, was, as Paul mentioned earlier, a godly sorrow. This brought Titus joy and refreshed him. I'm certain it also caused him to breathe a sigh of relief when he saw that the Corinthians had been properly and positively affected by that letter and by God's grace through that letter. This refreshment, that, however, that Paul references was temporary. As he, the, word, the, word is a, it's, the actual word is a temporary uh, intermission from labor, a temporary refreshment. It's, a specific, it's an interesting word. He knew that there was still difficulty in the Corinthian church, but for the time being and a result of the, first, the severe letter, they had, in a phrase, come around. So, any comments or questions about that? We'll finish up. I think I can finish verse 14. Is that the end of the chapter? No. We'll finish up with verse 14. We'll finish the chapter next time. So then he says, For if in anything I have boasted to him, to Titus, about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke of spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. Sometimes it's easy to think that although I have responded obediently to the word of God, and though I have changed my mind, and I have changed my behavior, and I have come around to biblical thinking. Does anybody want to walk up here and pat me on the back? Go right ahead. I have done this. Others won't. <laughs> this is a terribly incorrect method of thinking or way of thinking, especially for the shepherd and teacher of the Word of God. God continually, in one way or another, reminds us that He will work in the lives of those He has chosen for salvation. Philippians 1.6, For I am confident, Paul says, of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you might do as good as He's done with me. No, never. Heavens. He who began a good work in you will perfect it in the day of Jesus Christ. He will bring it to completion. He will. He will. And those, of, those who are in response positions of teaching and shepherding can be confident of this very thing, that God is at work in the lives of the believers. And He will bring it to perfection, to, to completion. Hebrews 12.2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter, the beginning and the finishing of our faith. Oh, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus himself has taken the responsibility to begin and perfect our faith. Can we think of any better person to do that? No. Paul knew that the God who had saved the Corinthians would use even this letter to convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he knew that the same God who indwelt them would give them the grace to respond with godly sorrow, repentance, and change. Now, that doesn't mean that as a man he didn't go, boy, this is, I sure can't wait for that response from Titus. When he gets back, I'm sure, oh, I hope it's good, I hope it's good. You know, because he's human. He is human. <laughs> so, he knew that God, would, who indwelt those believers at Corinth, would give them the grace to respond with godly sorrow, repentance, and change. This is the correct attitude a shepherd should have towards Bible-believing Christians. 
There is nothing in any shepherd that predisposes them to be somewhat better than anyone else at responding to God's correction. It is the grace of God alone that changes hearts. Alone. So in this vein, Paul had boasted properly to Titus about the Corinthians. He had assured Titus that the Corinthians would respond correctly and that he would be blessed by their response. And in this, Paul says to the Corinthians, he was not put to shame. Paul's discernment was fueled and bolstered by what he knew about the God of salvation. God was at work in the Corinthians and would continue to work in them. They would continue to move towards Christ-likeness one step at a time. Sometimes those steps were painful, and sometimes it seemed like they would take three steps forward only to take two steps back. But isn't that the way it is with every believer? It is God who is trustworthy, and Paul rested in that. And for us, in our own lives, confront sin in our own lives. Start there. Remember the beam and the sliver, the speck? Confront sin. But when it is incumbent upon us to deal with sin in another, in a brother or sister's life, let us do it with loving care, with kindness, with humility, with fear, lest we be tempted. And the result can be like what happened in this Corinthian church. Now, we, we only, I, I don't appeal to extra scriptural writings for doctrine, but for history, they're interesting. The Corinthians don't have any problems now. This is in the 50s. We don't, there's no more writing to them until the 95, about 95 AD. And that's just because all of us, all of us are prone to failure. All of us are prone to sin. So that's not to say that the Corinthians are worse than the rest of us. It's just that when God needed a case study so that we would have lots and lots of scripture about how to deal with difficult churches, he chose Corinth. <laughs> and that's why we have First and Second Corinthians. That's one of the re- some of the reasoning we have that. Confront sin in our lives. Be willing to confront it in others. But do it on God's terms, looking for godly sorrow and repentance. And pray. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you confronted the sin in our lives, that you regenerated us, and that you gave us the faith to believe. For without that, we would be the ones calling the stones down upon our heads and blaspheming you. We would do that in a heartbeat, our last heartbeat. But you have graciously chosen your church and the believers here, and it is such a blessing to serve here and see you at work, to will and to work of your good pleasure. We ask you to continue it. We ask you to give us grace as we worship throughout the rest of this morning. And we'll thank you for what you're doing and what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.